Merry Christmas and welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for December 2014. So let's start with the awakening and withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment in cardiac arrest survivors treated with therapeutic hypothermia, published in Critical Care Medicine. Prognosticating outcome after out-hospital cardiac arrest has been gradually delayed since the introduction of therapeutic hypothermia, with guidelines recommending 72 hours. This single-centre, prospective, cohort study examined 154 comatose survivors of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, of whom 77% received therapeutic hypothermia. They report 78 hospital deaths, with brain death in 10% and withdrawal in 81%. 76 patients were discharged alive, 41% with good neurological outcome. Time to awakening did not differ between patients that received therapeutic hypothermia and those that did not. However, all patients that did not receive therapeutic hypothermia and awoke did so before 72 hours. Now, of the 56 patients that received therapeutic hypothermia and had good neurological outcomes, 36% awoke after 72 hours. So the authors conclude that our results indicate that making withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy decisions at 72 hours post-arrest could deprive as many as 36% of comatose survivors treated with TH of the opportunity to potentially achieve good neurological outcomes. That's a big call because it is worth noting that they defined awoke as wakefulness and a consistent motor GCS score of 6 on serial assessments. So they don't tell us what those 20 patients or the 36% who awoke after 72 hours were doing at 72 hours. So were they showing positive signs, flexing, purposeful movements, eye-opening, or were they actually comatose? Because that's probably an important differentiation. Still, it's food for thought, and it looks like there will be pressure to push the prognostication further out than 72 hours. On a different subject, in intensive care medicine, we have temporal trends in critical care events complicating HIV infection. 1999 to 2010 multi-centre cohort study in France. So the epidemiology of HIV infection and AIDS in Western countries has evolved due to earlier screening, improved management and wider access to combination antiretroviral therapy, CART. So this has led to a marked reduction in AIDS-related mortality and a demographic of older HIV-infected patients with controlled HIV replication, better immune function and a different disease profile. This includes an increase in chronic comorbidities such as chronic hep C, cardiovascular disease, COPD and malignancies, as well as the development and progression of HIV-associated non-AIDS or HANA conditions. Now, HIV-infected patients are at a higher risk of critical illness than age-matched non-HIV-infected individuals with comparable comorbidities. With HANA conditions, the reason for critical illness compared to the prominence of opportunistic infections seen in previous decades. So this observational study describes trends in the characteristics and outcomes of HIV-infected patients admitted to 34 French ICUs 
from 1999, the pre-cart period, to 2010. And they report 6,865 HIV-infected patients were admitted to ICUs, and that's 2.6% of the ICU population, with no change over time. A linear increase in age over time, and a significant increase in cardiac, pulmonary disease, diabetes, and HCV co-infection. Strikingly, there's a threefold increase in chronic renal disease over time, and a linear increase in malignancies. Critical illness related to respiratory failure and sepsis remained stable, but renal failure increased. Bacterial pneumonia didn't change, but PJP, cerebral toxo, and TB decreased significantly. The overall prevalence of AIDS-defining disease as the primary ICU diagnosis decreased linearly, and there was a twofold increase in surgical admissions. There was a marginal decrease in ICU mortality from 18.3 to 16.2%, although mortality in patients with multiple organ failure and organ support decreased from 79.8 to 61.7%, although that's still very high. And hospital mortality showed a similar trend. So overall, this describes a clear change in the clinical presentations, intensive care management, and mortality of critically ill HIV-infected patients over the last 12 years, with a shift towards HANA conditions and non-HIV-associated comorbidities over age-defining opportunistic infections. It does not provide long-term survival and quality-of-life data. Okay, let's move to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, where we've got a different study. This is red blood cells induce necroptosis of lung endothelial cells and increase susceptibility to lung inflammation. A little bit of unusual for a journal club. So this in vitro study is interesting because it explores the cellular mechanism behind the relationship between red cell transfusion and ARDS. They report, or what they did, they grew human lung microvascular endothelial cells and treated them with red cells and observed an increased expression of pro-inflammatory danger signal high mobility group box 1, HMGB1, which is an intracellular homeostasis mediator that when present extracellularly is a potent mediator of inflammation. Now red cell treated endothelial cells displayed marked plasma membrane loss and nuclear swelling consistent with necroptosis or regulated necrotic cell death. Another mediator of necroptosis is receptor interacting serine threonine protein kinase 3, RIP3, which is elevated in red cell treated human lung microvascular endothelial cells. RIP3 was elevated in the plasma of non-survivors and transfused subjects with sepsis. Red blood cell transfusion sensitized mice to lung injury through the release of HMGB1. So overall, this study establishes a link between red cell transfusion, expression of factors associated with necroptosis and lung injury. What is unclear is the pathways through which red cells initiate this response and if this can be modified. Okay, back to clinical medicine. In The Lancet, we have 
140 millimole per litre of sodium versus 77 millimole per litre of sodium in maintenance IV fluid therapy for children in hospital. This is the PIMS randomised control double-blind trial. So should hospitalised children receive hypotonic or isotonic fluid? This question has caused great debate with the traditional approach advocating 30 millimoles per litre, very hypotonic, offset by more recent recommendations for 75 millimoles per litre to prevent hyponatremia and neurological morbidity in hospitalised children with increased ADH, etc. Despite this change, neurological morbidity continues to be reported. So this single centre PICU RCT from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne randomised 690 children who needed IV maintenance fluid for six hours or longer to receive either isotonic 140 millimoles per litre or hypotonic 77 millimoles per litre IV fluid for 72 hours or until IV fluid rate decreased to less than 50% of standard maintenance requirements. They report similar characteristics at baseline except more infants in the 140 group. Fewer 140 patients developed the primary outcome of hyponatremia, defined as a sodium of less than 135 millimoles per litre. That was 4% versus 11%, odd ratio of 0.31, p-value is 0.001. No patients developed symptomatic hyponatremia. The incidence of hypernatremia was similar, and there was no difference in the primary endpoint in pre-specified subgroups, including critically ill children. There was no difference in the amount of fluid received by patients that reached the primary endpoint compared to those who didn't, and the Kaplan-Meier curves revealed the risk of hyponatremia was highest in the first six hours in both groups, with the 140 having a very small risk beyond 24 hours, while the risk continued in the 77 group. So overall, this is the largest RCT of isotonic versus hypertonic IV maintenance fluids in hospitalised children and it shows that isotonic fluid is associated with a lower risk of hyponatremia with no increased risk of hyponatremia. Will this be enough to change practice? Another paediatric intensive care article we have mortality related to invasive infections, sepsis and septic shock in critically ill children in Australia and New Zealand from 2002 to 2013. This retrospective multi-centre cohort study of the ANS-PIC registry identified 11,574 children admitted to Australia and New Zealand ICUs with invasive infections, sepsis or septic shock. This cohort represents 12% of paediatric admissions in the region during this period and they also compared the 2002 to 2007 period to the 2008 to 2013 periods. They found that chronic neurological conditions, immunodeficiency or suppression, and chronic respiratory conditions were the most common underlying conditions. About half had no comorbidity. There was an increase from 413 patients per annum to 830 in the second period with severe infections. And there was an increase in neonates between the two time periods. 52% of cases had a pathogen identified and the overall mortality was 3.9% for invasive infections, 5.6% for sepsis and 17% for septic shock. 
the risk-adjusted mortality decreased significantly for invasive infections and sepsis, but not septic shock. And these deaths accounted for 26.4% of all paediatric critical care deaths during the period. Multivariate analysis revealed oncological conditions, BMT, chronic neurological disorders, chronic renal failure, and major comorbidity were associated with increased mortality. So overall, this study describes the demographics and incidence of severe infections requiring critical care admission in a large population-based cohort of children. It describes an increased incidence, improving outcomes, and that 12% of admissions accounted for 26.4% of deaths. Back to adults. Let's look at ECMO and the CHEER trial, refractory cardiac arrest treated with mechanical CPR, hypothermia, ECMO, and early reperfusion. So the CHEER trial is a single-centre, prospective, observational pilot study that provided mechanical CPR, rapid IV cooling with 30 mils per kilo of ice-cold saline, and ECMO CPR, eCPR, via femoral VA cannulation to selected patients with refractory in and out of hospital cardiac arrest. They report on 26 patients in whom ECMO was established in 92% in a median time of 56 minutes from collapse and achieved return of spontaneous circulation in 96%. 42% had coronary intervention and the median ECMO runtime was two days, with 54% weaned off ECMO and 54% discharged from hospital with full neurological recovery. This is certainly an innovative study and marked departure from standard CPR with encouraging outcomes. If we look at the data more closely, there are some important points. The out-of-hospital cardiac arrest group did badly. Three out of 11 survived. Now they report five, but two of them didn't get ECMO, so didn't really get the intervention. The in-hospital cardiac arrest group did better with a 64% recovery. VF had 86% recovery, asystole zero. Collapse to ECMO was 40 minutes in survivors and 78 minutes in non-survivors. There were higher rates of major bleeding, requirements for vascular surgery intervention, which was mainly backflow, cannula and repair. And the cause of death was hypoxic brain injury in 33%, multi-organ failure in 25%, intracerebral hemorrhage in 17% or other bleed in 17%. So if you were to try and set up a bigger trial or look at this yourself, Perhaps you'd focus on less than 65-year-olds in hospital cardiac arrest with VF and able to get them on ECMO in under 60 minutes, something that would be very challenging for a lot of centres. So let's finish off the year with the two trials published in the New England Journal of Medicine in December on the role of progesterone for severe traumatic brain injury. So progesterone is a potent neurosteroid and preclinical studies show early administration after experimental TBI in lab animals reduces cerebral edema, neuronal loss, and behavior deficits. With 5.3 million Americans living with TBI and severe TBI survivors requiring 5 to 10 years of intensive therapy with substantial residual disability, a case can be made certainly to keep looking for ways to do better.
So this first RCT randomized 1,195 patients with severe TBI, GCS less than 8, or equal to 8, within 8 hours of injury to progesterone versus placebo for 120 hours. They report that they were matched at baseline, that there was no difference in the primary outcome, which was Glasgow outcome scale at 6 months, and proportional odds model revealed no effect of progesterone treatment in either adjusted or unadjusted analyses. There was a similar proportion of patients in vegetative state or death, 22.2% for progesterone versus 22.3% for placebo, and there was no significant difference in secondary outcomes. So that's the synapse trial. The second trial is the PROTECT-3 trial. And this RCT randomized 882 patients within 4 hours of TBI occurring and a GCS of 4 to 12 to 96 hours of placebo or IV progesterone. The study was stopped due to futility at 882 of 1,140 patients and they report similar at baseline, no difference in primary outcome which was favorable functional recovery using Glasgow outcome scale. Six-month mortality of 17.2% overall with no difference in treatment groups and just more phlebitis or thrombophlebitis in the progesterone group. So the two groups of authors conclude that progesterone doesn't seem to work, that there are problems of heterogeneity and patient injury in the PROTECT-3 trial, and that perhaps there is a long history of failed TBI trials and this problem of heterogeneity and how these TBI trials are done suggest we should rethink drug development and testing in TBI because we don't seem to be meeting with success. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club podcast for 2014. Thank you for joining us for the year and we look forward to seeing you again in 2015. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.